I, I kind of like to make things difficult for myself. And I guess one always the impetus for making the work is to see what will happen. And, um, and so it's almost like if there's anything that's a known quantity, then it's not really worth my while or I'm not really interested at all. Um, and then so if, if something's an experiment always, then um, the impetus is to try it out and see what will happen. Then there's, sort of, there's bound to be failures, right? Hey, Matt Levinson here, and I might have a story for you today. Gemma Smith is an artist whose work I've loved for a long time. She's also an old friend, and like so many friends, there's so much I've never had the chance to ask her. Her work's taken shape as paintings on canvas and chessboards, architectural sculptures, a big Sistine Chapel ceiling-esque painting high above Brisbane Supreme Court. It's inspired fashion and textiles, designer rugs, even architecture. It defies formats and expectations. It's uncontrived, yet controlled and deliberate. It's serious, exploratory, impressionist, adventurous. There's something really joyful and exhilarating about it. The process of the work seems really crucial, and it's something that you don't really see in the gallery. So despite being friends for years and having had the chance to visit you in the studio, Gem, I've always been intrigued to know more about how you make your work. That's what this podcast is about talking to great people, people who you know and love, their work and who they are as people. But you probably should have asked all the nosy questions about all that stuff earlier on. And now it's just assumed knowledge. That's what this is about, asking some of those questions. Jem, thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. Thanks, Matt. (laughs) You know, in a way, even though we're now um, you know, a number of episodes down in this series. It was it was you saying yes to doing this that was like a real catalyst for me. Like this is actually something that I could really do. So it really played a pivotal role in this thing existing, whatever it is. That's great. I'm glad we finally got to do it. I've always been interested in how you ended up doing what you do. You know, that's kind of the the story of this podcast. Can you go back as far back as you like? Mm-hmm. I don't know, parents, grandparents, I don't know, Way back even further if you want. Um, are there any clues to, to what you do, you know, looking back? So I guess I came from a family that really appreciated art. Um, my grandmother went to the National Art School in the late 30s and my, you know, grandfather was a, a sort of used to sketch and was a patron of the arts and my dad was um, in, it was actually the art director for a record company, so commercial um, graphics and... Um, and my parents met at my dad's exhibition opening. He paints. Um, and so, you know, I sort of grew up surrounded by art. Um, and my sister, who is also an artist, a painter as well, and I spent our childhoods um, just making things, uh, collaging, painting, sketching, pretty much, you know, constantly. And I kind of always thought I'd be an artist. There's a really dreamy quality that is kind of shared, I mean, that your work and Nicola's work are quite different in many ways, but there's a dreamy quality to both of them that, I don't know, to me kind of suggests a real kind of imaginative aspect to it. 
is that, I mean, is that something that you see as well? Well, I think, I mean, we, we both shared certain experiences in childhood. So um, my grandmother kind of maintained a painting practice her whole life um, and would take my sister and I down to Lancove River Park to paint with her sketch club, her painting club, and talk about colour. And my dad um, had this incredible workshop garage with just everything you can imagine, bottles of mercury, um, lots of concrete to pour moulds, you know, half-finished violins, whatever he's doing. And, you know, he shared that with my sister and I, um, so we'd tinker around with him. And so there was just this, on one hand, quite a practical approach, um, but also we get lost in kind of this, yeah, just drawing and painting all day, um, my sister and I. So I think it was an interesting combination of that sort of dreamy, playing around um, but also like a practical hands-on making um, more of a kind of tool shed approach. And were you always you know going to that tool shed to get different ingredients to work with to play around with? Uh, Not really that was the stuff we did with my dad so he would make you know this is terrible to think of now but we'd make sort of hot air balloons out of you know cut cut um, sort of I guess metho uh, soaked rags put in a half um half a can and then lit so that you could make a, you know, a garbage bag hot air balloon to release. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, he'd be making anchors for a boat or something like that, so we'd help him in the garage. But then, no, in the house we we used sort of like, um, I guess we had, I remember finding rocks and painting on rocks. Um, My mum was a... um, did ch- like learned childhood education um, and with an interest in like arts education. So she had been to Karingai College and had some really incredible um, sort of fairly 70s inspired activities for us. Um, I remember her giving my sister and I, you know, a, like sifter and a packet of flour and saying, why don't you make it snow in the garden? <laughs> I love that. Things like that. You know, we're sitting at your place in Surrey Hills um, hearing the trams go past every now and again. Um, And one of the things I really loved when you guys, when you first moved back to Sydney was coming over here and seeing the incredible creations you would make for your little boy where you'd have these just incredible things that would stretch around your house. Um, Was that an inspiration that came from the way that kind of creative stuff that you're doing as a kid yourself? Yeah, I think so. Um, It really like having that creativity at home or just I guess having those um, projects sort of on the go I see is really important um I think I think you might be referring to the marble the famous marble run that went around the house it was amazing it was like one of those things that you know you see in a movie where it's like (laughs) the superstar parent has created this incredible thing but like none of no one that I know would have made something like that, but it was an amazing thing that was just captivating coming around here. Well, that's generous. There's also some, like, you know, hideously, um, <laughs> you know, big cardboard structures that linger around a bit too long. Um, but, no, I th- I sort of – I see creativity in for childhood as really important. I, I kind of been reflecting on this, as you said, with my own son's um, learning and just thinking about how – lucky I was at our Tarman public school we had a dedicated art teacher who was also an artist and there was a classroom set up for um, play and you know and and to learn skills in printing um, in sculpture and um, this teacher had each class once a week um, 
in this dedicated classroom and you know it was brilliant I just I think I don't see that in public schools as much anymore and it's something I feel extremely passionate about um and I just yeah I hope that I guess I, I try and um, do as much as I can at home because I see it as a super important part of um, learning in childhood. It feels like there's a bit of a shift in thinking about early childhood learning at the moment. There's a whole bunch of policy that's coming out from state and federal government at the moment and there's sort of a renewed kind of awareness of how important that is but not necessarily about the role of creativity, you know. Mm, um, mm. You were going to go on and study as, as you know, when you're at school, you had the intention to study genetics um, for, a, for a period there. And one of the things that I find really interesting about your work is there is a really scientific, you know, aspect to it. What, what was it that made you want to study that and why didn't you ultimately? Also, I had an interest in, um, very, in science, I guess, through um, university and I could imagine sort of alternate careers in with science as a focus or with um, even architecture or industrial design or, you know, um, I found it quite hard to sort of, as you go through school, I guess, limit your um, units of study to something more specific. Um, and I kept, it felt quite sad to cut, cut off different subjects, I guess, to narrow it down, so to speak. Um, in a way, I think art is has been amazing in that it allows um, an exploration in any direction you like within that. So I guess through some of these um, projects I've been doing, um, I've been able to incorporate some of my, you know, technical interests or whatever. And so, for example, that I made that um, installation with thousands of balloons and got to sort of fully investigate and um, learn all the technical elements to the materiality and the um, and I guess the outcomes for various scenarios for balloons or something. So, um, in a way, I I kind of feel like yeah, it's possible to for me to sort of follow other interests within the kind of um, headspace of being an artist. Um, but yeah, it's it's tricky. I think your first work was shown at. A bunch of artists run spaces so the likes of gallery 132 and new space and a, a bunch of other independent spaces that are long gone now but i reckon the first time i actually probably the first time i met you and the first time i saw your work was these really exquisite you know texture i think it was probably at first draft gallery um and there were you know there were these sort of really minimal textured um canvases and stitched canvases and some that were using, you know, train tickets and things like that. And it's it's a long way back from the work that you're doing. Can you tell me about what you were working on at that time? Yeah, so I guess um, I remember those those days of um, artist-run spaces, which were so important in Sydney um, and, st and still are. And I think um, that that work specifically had been the sort of work I was looking at when I was at university. It's quite minimal um, abstraction. And I was, um, I had um, used a single texture to make marks across the canvas and um, the lifespan of the texture sort of dictated the, the number of panels that it would cover and therefore the, the size of the work or the length of the work. Um, and so it was more of a conceptual approach um, and there was some of these stitching works which were um, sort of machine 
uh, stitching onto onto painted canvas. Within about a year from then, so that was about 2001, 2002, mm. within about a year, so if we're thinking about 2003, suddenly your visual palette just really exploded. And, mm. and the sort of first sign, I guess, of the work that has, you know, the kind of visual aesthetic that's kind of carried through a lot of your work since then appeared then, you know, these um, blasts of colour, much larger um, canvases, quite geometric and yet, you know, not following any clear structure. You know, there were these quite flamboyant sort of paintings. What what happened in that moment? Because you, you went from this really limited palette, obviously following this kind of clear process to that to that next um that next aesthetic that has really dominated what you've done since since then even though it's grown and evolved over time yeah so I think though that work did begin in about 2003 and it kind of I guess it it was where I began my sort of love for paint in a way the the works prior to that weren't really invested in paint they were paintings and they were speaking a language of painting but I don't think they were um I'd really discovered you know paint in a way um, and colour specifically. So um, that first exhibition that you're referring to was at Mop Projects in 2003. Look, I think it really followed a, uh, a trip I took, um, my first sort of proper art, art trip to Europe and I went to Berlin and I went to Venice to see the Biennale um, and to Zurich and some other places and I, I just really looked at a lot of art and I, I remember having a moment with painting um I think it was in Venice at the Museum Cora it was an exhibition looking at painting um and it was just this I felt this super generosity of this medium and I just had a a very strong moment with it and I think it was inspiring um to me and I think after that I just I kind of went into uh, yeah I started back um after that and just I got lost in that direction I guess and I'm still (laughs) on that tangent now it's so interesting because soon after that you moved up to Brisbane there's probably this period of a couple of years where things sort of continued on much as as they had and you got to a a point around 2005 2006 a couple of years after moving up to Brisbane where there was just this explosion of you know different stuff you know like um, we start to see you know, um, you step into this kind of sculptural and architectural spaces with these adaptables and boulders and and the paintings are, uh, are growing as well. But there, there seems to have been a period when you first moved up to Brisbane where there was a bit of a, a bit of a pause in that kind of productivity or that creative productivity. What was it like moving to a new city like that? And I guess having to reestablish yourself or find a new footing. So Brisbane was interesting for me. Um, I kind of see it as where I really established a studio-based practice. And I, although I had a studio in Sydney, I was working full-time, so only using it um, outside of hours. And what Brisbane afforded me was this kind of time and space to really just um, to work and to really um, – I mean, I started, I started having, you know, 12-hour studio days up there. It was amazing. Um and it was a really productive time. I mean, some of those, um, I guess it's where I started working with sculpture as well. And um, the specific 
sculptures I'm thinking of are the these folding sculptures and these sort of boulder like sculptures which you can talk about but um they they took a lot of time they took about four years in research and development to sort of um from beginning of kind of idea process through um, trial and error until I actually had them finished and so um it the time I had in Brisbane was especially in the beginning was it was very is very special I was at um Metro Arts and had this like lovely studio full-time transitioned to full-time art practice over the next couple of years which was was incredible as well um and and I just sort of um I found the quietness of Brisbane really conducive to working hard and enjoying that was it in a way like an R&D period that sort of set you up for that next stage, you know, of developing those sculptural pieces? Well, I was working on um, painting at the same time and I guess there was all of these questions that were coming to me or, you know, difficulties I was having with painting and that I feel like that's what the sculptures were um, were solving in a way for me. So, um, and, I, and in, even though I'm calling them sculptures, I think of them as, you know, part of the painting project as well. I often think of you as much as a kind of a material scientist in the way that you work, you know, this really rigorous approach to like tracking down materials and really testing the edges of what, what is what is available and possible. You were making these um, these sculptural pieces. Can you talk through the process of where the idea comes from, how mm. that starts, yeah. and then track that through to like how you realise that by by finding the materials that can can help you realise that vision, yeah. you know, because that's, you know, it's not it's not a simple process. It's not like no. you can just get that stuff off the shelf. So those, those sculptures um, are the adaptable sculptures and um, they did take a while and I think um, they sort of start with the paintings as well, so in that language of painting. So what was happening with the paintings was that I was um, making these geometric sort of um, hard edge acrylic paintings and um, deliberating extensively. I sort of, I, I guess to explain them, I'd, I had set myself a series of limitations or parameters and I was playing them out almost like a game. Um, and I was increasingly imposing rules upon my process. And that was as a, as a way of like, a, you know, um, I guess making it interesting for myself um, and to generate and you know a way to generate ideas and so I, I found as I was as progressing with these paintings I was almost unable to decide how to leave them how the composition should be sort of finally um, complete and so I kind of had the idea that maybe I could leave that part of the process of painting, like the final composition in the hands of the audience. And so um, I came up with the idea of these um, adaptable sculptures, which basically when they're flat, they sit like a um, tangram or something, like um, so shapes of colour. Um, but then as an audience member or a viewer, you can, um, you can pick them up, sort of flip them around and position them into different um, situations and there's almost an infinite number of positions they can be sat in and um, and they sort of do look like three-dimensional paintings if that's does that sound about right like yeah they you get sit, a sense of that they and when when you've shown them they've almost always been in a gallery with those paintings right yeah and so there's like a real connection between them yeah and I mean to take a step back further I think they those paintings um, 
I feel like they almost had the aim of, you know, keeping the viewer occupied or um, the viewer sort of holding a gaze somehow. And I think that the sculptures relate to that in a way that they're sort of taking that one step further, which is sort of to demand engagement physically. This kind of like thinking about the way people interact with the work also comes from like a further step back, which was that I had a job um, as a museum attendant when I was just finished art school at the MCA in Sydney. And I spent an awful lot of time watching people interact with art and I think it had an influence on me. Um, and the way that I think about people viewing the work. So anyway, back to the sculptures. No, before we go mm. on, like, yeah. tell me about that. Like, what, what did you learn from watching people? Well, so I think, I don't know if I learnt anything um, tangible, so to speak, but I think when you, when you watch, when you get to look at artwork for a really long time, that's pretty interesting. But then when you watch people looking at art, there's something that's really, mm. you know, um, really interesting about this work in the sort of the way that it's it it's really playful. You know, there's something really playful about it. It comes out of this very rigorous process that you went through to develop it. Mm. But there's something sort of surprising, you know, in a gallery space. I remember seeing the work shown, those adaptable works, and people would be like, oh, am I supposed to, like, touch this? Um and there's this real tension between them being like, you know, as you said, like they could, they look a little bit like a tangram, like it could be like a child's toy. And they're also things that are, you know, um, shown in art galleries in this really serious context, acquired by museums or by collectors. They, they're sort of straddling these two like quite interesting spaces. Is that tension something that um, that is kind of playing on your mind or in the back of your mind as you're developing these things? Not so much, um, but that has become an interesting sort of point with these works where um, when I first showed them it was in, um, you know, smaller spaces, uh, Metro Arts Gallery or at my exhibition at Saracotia Gallery. Um, and then as they've been shown in museums and there's such a higher visitor number, there there has to be measures taken, I guess, to... Um, to allow the work to be, you know, interacted with and then also cared for. Um, and so that has forced some interesting conversations because then these works are shown, um, you know, under a acrylic box or something. They're not actually functioning as they originally were. Um, and so we've, you know, we've sometimes made a slideshow of the sculpture in many different positions, but then that physicality of interaction is lacking. So it's, 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 an interesting, um, it's an interesting part of the work. I've been really shocked at various times with the way that you work over time at, you know, there's a real wave of creative destruction in, in developing some of these works. You know, visiting you in the studio and seeing paintings, you'll paint these just what are, you know, to my outsider's view, stunning paintings. And, you know, a day or two later, I'm like, uh, I hear, you know, you've started again, you know, like painted the whole thing over and starting started again. And that's something that you would never see in the gallery when you see the work. You never see that kind of um, behind the scenes. It's, it's a process that is really intense and 
Yeah, as I said, you, you, anyone seeing the shows would never see that. What, what is it that's driving you in that moment? I, I kind of like to make things difficult for myself. And I guess one, always the impetus for making the work is to see what will happen. And, um, and so it's almost like if there's anything that's a known quantity, then it's not really worth my while or I'm not really interested at all. Um, and then so if, if something's an experiment always, then um, the impetus is to try it out and see what will happen. Then there's sort of there's bound to be failures, right, um, within that process. And I guess it depends the kind the kind of work. So, for example, some of the paintings are built up slowly, piece by piece, and I can manoeuvre that or change that or sometimes I'll change a colour, you know, 16 times before I'm happy with it. Um, and, you know, they can be slowly sort of incrementally kind of played with. Um, and then some of the other paintings are like um, really, really quick and really sort of self-sabotaging, say, or I'll, I'll be hardly looking or I'll come up with some sort of way of approaching the canvas that isn't, is, is very unknown. And then it, it'll be a situation where I'll have like, you know, 20 seconds before it starts to dry, you know, for the sort of deal or no deal moment um, before I wash it off. And so, yeah, I mean, it's each, each, yeah, each process is very um, individual. Um, and then I also like to further challenge my process so when things are becoming I guess when I see I'm relying on um, something that's too comfortable or too known or a trope or something I'd like to throw myself a challenge in order to disrupt that so for example one of the bodies of work I, I made was an exhibition for Sarah Cotier Gallery in 2013 in the inaugural show in the new space there I had noticed that I was working in with these two color paintings at the time and I had noticed that I was really comfortably mixing the second colour to sit relationally to the first. And it was almost like it was boring because I sort of had it down somehow. And so I, I sort of decided I will, I will only use straight from the tube colours for this show. And that was, that was a massive, you know, challenge. Um, so little things like that. Or I, I was making another show in 2008 for Milani Gallery in Brisbane and I decided I would paint the ground of the five big canvases I was working on paint the grounds uh, individually different colours and diff- and colours that I found kind of unappealing actually and it would it, then it had a cascade effect to you know force me to uh, I guess work with other colours that I didn't really like or or not that I didn't like so I should make sense of those those grounds um, so there's like you know games that c- kind of propel the paintings in a way are those games or the rules that you set up, are they ways, ways of keeping yourself accountable to, you know, to some higher value or are the rules the kind of the thing in, in themselves? I guess the answer could be both in a way. I mean, I think it's about keeping it interesting for me um, and also there's something about the virtuosity of, un, of really understanding the medium or what I'm doing which is, is uninteresting and... Um, I don't feel that um, propelled to sort of make make the work because I guess I, I kind of know what will happen then. And so, yeah, what's the point? So you want to be surprised? Yes. There was this moment, um, this remarkable shift in your work when I guess it was sort of a little bit further along where, you know, talking about 2009, some, somewhere around there where your work um, with the boulders went from being these flat 
sort of monotone, all sort of surfaces to starting to work with um, these plastics or perspex or, you know, you will know exactly the material you are using. But it, it turned those works into these just incredible light pieces, which are uh, quite phenomenal to see. At, so at that point you're working with three quite different formats. You're painting, you're doing these kind of architectural, structural things and you're working with sculpture, you know. And there was this, it felt like there was a really big shift in the confidence of the work that you were putting forward. You um, were included in shows at GOMA, at Gertrude in Melbourne, um, this show on cubism at Heidi in Victoria. What does it feel like to be, you know, to be in a moment like that where, you know, I, I know it's, it's very incremental over time, but suddenly you find yourself right in, in centre stage in a way. It does, yeah, it feels very incremental um, to me and I guess my main focus is always on the work and I think, I guess at, at that point I was, I just feel really, felt really happy to be able to do what I love to do like full time. I remember um, and just feeling that, um, and, I, and I still feel that way, it's kind of incredible to be able to just, you know, have a job that you really love one of your standout works was um this enormous piece on the ceiling of the supreme court in brisbane um the qe2 courts of law that was a massive project um you know half a billion dollar project to um to rebuild that um that court and as part of the project work was commissioned by you um, and also Yayoi Kasama and Sally Gabori, two incredible painters. It was one of the last works of, you know, one of the last acts of the Anna Bly government before they were voted out. How did you approach that work? Because that, that's, a, that's a, you know, a commission like that is a long piece. It's from pitching right through to developing it. Yeah, and it was such an amazing, you know, career moment for me. Um, I felt so... Was a bit proud to be part of that project. Um, so it was a long process. It took about three years. Um, and I was invited um, to um, to make that painting, um, I guess, was it probably in 2009? And, I, and I, at first um, I remember thinking that you know, this is this is such a career-defining moment. This painting has to be sort of everything in a way. And and I spent, I guess I would have gone away and spent nearly a whole year trying to make the painting that was sort of worthy of this 260 meter, square metre space in the foyer, um, sort of up 16 metres high um, in the foyer of this Queen Elizabeth II Courts of Law, um, as it's been called. But Interestingly, the architect, John Hawkins, who invited me to, to make this work, he had already seen a painting of mine from 2008. Interestingly, it was one of those paintings that was made on a ground um, of dubious colour. <laughs> and, um, and he had identified that this was, this was kind of the work that he would like to see up there, um, given, you know, that what, what he was thinking about... Um, I guess the relationship between like humanity and the law and its ever-changing kind of possibilities and it's sort of the way that it's always in flux and never sort of a settled, defined thing, I guess. Um, and so 
you know, after this whole year of tr- of making these paintings that just were not working, I think they were too imbued with anxiety. It was, <laughs> you know, it's a really hard thing to do. And the way that I work is so sort of, is so process driven and it's, um, I, I use a lot of strategies to kind of um, deal with sort of attention in the work. So too much focus on decision making, like I will try and distract my, um, my you know, my kind of like decision making or my sort of analytical side sometimes so I can be a bit more in the flow and this project was doing everything um, against that in a way. I guess it must be a huge load on that kind of process if you're also thinking I want to create something that is my legacy like defining and standing in for all the work I've done and all that totally. sort of yeah. It was huge and also there's a conflict I think um in for me um where with public projects they um you know with it as an artist I, I'm always in, interested in what I'm doing right now but I think with public projects it's not terrible if there's a bit of a lag where it's something that maybe I've resolved or thought about or worked through to an extent that it's not like right at the experimental stage and so I kind of reconsidered this work um that was the one that was kind of first thought of or um that John had had thought about for the space and I realized that um the project would be quite interesting as a sort of technical reproduction of that work um, and that I could see how that what like that vision for that work in that space was actually yeah really like right actually. I love that thinking about the role of the building and Mm. the and the kind of the life of the people that are going through that building and the challenges and questions and you know like people only I mean people only appear in that court when they're at just a, a really pivotal point in their lives. I love the idea that you're thinking through that work um, in relation to that. Can you talk to me about the process of actually realising it? Yeah, sure. So we um, – so those paintings, because they're so process-driven um, and they're sort of made in this sort of flow, um, I essentially took that – painting which was originally about 160 centimeters um so it's a kind of a case to upscale it by 10 times um so I took that painting and I sort of deconstructed my actions um in making it into about 160 different layers you know I was sort of toying with the idea of asking someone to reproduce it for me on the ceiling and then I sort of it twigged that actually what I needed to do was replicate replicate the process and not replicate the painting and so broke yeah broke it down into 160 I think layers and played it out as it was originally played out so um, I guess underneath there may have been like a pink triangle that you can barely see or maybe you can't even see anymore but it still adds somewhat to the to the final painting because they're sort of like there's all of this working underneath um, and so I worked with Cracknell and Lonigan, Peter Lonigan, um, who had worked on some amazing ceiling paintings in um, Paris at the Cape Bromley Museum. And I worked with a, a, a scenic painter, Richard Lucas, and I, we spent three months sort of planning and almost training. So because we were working from mobile scaffolds directly onto the ceiling itself with an entire false floor sort of built for us, um, scaffolding as well. We 
Richard did the bulk of the painting, but I was sort of almost um, there talking and coaching through it. And we came up with all of these strategies in order to kind of upscale. So if you can imagine there was like, you know, a three or four centimetre or maybe 20 centimetre line to then upscale that by 10, you've sort of got to run a line about, you know, four metres across the ceiling. And and so it's, it's almost like very finicky, but things like you can't have it ruled because it has to feel like almost a giant has kind of flicked um, a line across and so um, or sort of like these washy areas that have to kind of it means that you know Richard had to run t- you know 10 feet in one direction and back again to sort of make it look like once again like I might have in the original painting just dipped my paintbrush in water and then just like swooshed it around and you know to make it have that kind of still have that casual feeling of of like a, a, the smaller painting and how high off the ground are you at this point when you're running you know across <laughs> across well, the roof so like the that. false floor is made about three meters below the ceiling it's a 16 meter high ceiling false floor is made about three meters below the ceiling and then there's a mobile scaffold that sits above that so the mobile scaffold maybe has two and a half meters in length and so you're just working off that and then you're wheeling that along a little bit yeah it, it was it was quite a lot of fun actually did it feel precarious um, or was it more fun? No, it was. Pre- well, what felt stressful about it was that I could never sort of stand back and apprehend the whole thing, and I'm so used to doing that in my work. And so I stuck to a very te- technical kind of um, playing out of the original because I didn't want to make any changes because I know the way those paintings are constructed. They're so much in balance. So one thing happens over here, something else happens over here, and that somehow that kind of that all works as a whole. And then if you change one thing, it's like a domino effect. You have to like, you know, um, and so I know that at the end, we were a bit early in the completion, a couple of weeks early, the Lend-Lease guys wanted to take the scaffold down and I was um, sort of reticent to let it go. Um, and I was promised a, a cherry picker for as many days as I needed to make any changes. But um, to be honest, I couldn't really entirely see the whole um, ceiling from up there anyway so it was very nerve-wracking having that false floor taken down and How being you, on the ground what was it like that first time when you saw it when the false Ooh. floor was gone <laughs> um sort of you know it was really exciting because actually we had pulled it off in terms of like replicating this original painting but um it was eerily similar as well um but no it was extremely exciting stressful <laughs> Did you have to get the cherry picker out at all? No, no, no cherry picker. So around this time, well, you know, before the the courts opened, you moved to the USA um, to to live in Pittsburgh and there was a change of government in Queensland. The Campbell-Newman government was elected. What was it like seeing, you know, from a distance, living on the other side of the world, seeing this, um, you know, career-defining work finally open um, but with, with a different government and a, and a much more hostile government opening it. What, what was it like watching that from a distance? I mean, I, yeah, I, I wished I had gone to the opening of the, of the painting. I hadn't – or the, of the building, I should say. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it, you know, all of the other works finished um, – and I felt a long way away, so I wasn't really so engaged with it. Um, I, yeah, in some ways, 
Yeah, I, I, do, I don't know how to answer that because I sort of wasn't um, wasn't there for it. There were three great artists, like truly mm. great artists involved in that project. Um, and the the minister who was responsible came in and said, you know, his, his main comment to media over and over again at the time was we couldn't stop it <laughs> and white paint would have been better. You yeah. know, it was... Pr- <laughs> wow, pr- I don't think I realised that intensity. Yeah, so, you know, there's there's a lot of reporting in the Courier Mail and, mm. and elsewhere of, of it at the time and, you know, like you see the work by all three of you and it's incredible and the vision of the architects to make that work such a prominent part, you know, the Sally Gabori work that's sitting behind you know, the court, you know, it's it's part of the experience of fronting up to the court in a really visceral and dominating way. It's, it's, it's and, and that's, it's one of the least dominating of Sally Gabori's works, but it creates the space and your work at, in a pivotal place. How did it feel, I mean, to see other artists like that, mm. you know, talked about in that way, um, but also to to find yourself in a political controversy like that, you know. Gosh, I just feel happy I was in America. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's um, it's all, it's quite sad for all the people that put so much time into it. It must have been hard to be in Brisbane at that time. Yeah. But that work is still there. Mm. How do you reflect on it now? Because that work is still there. The courts are still there. The governments have changed. Yeah. We've, we've moved on a long way in a way that controversy is completely forgotten, I'm sure, by, by virtually everyone. Mm. How do you reflect on the work now? Well, I know that it, it gave me, it ga- in terms of my own um, practice, it was such an important work, um, not only for the obvious reasons, but funnily enough, before I made that work, I was, uh, I found making large paintings really exhausting or, you know, stressful or somehow like, a big deal in a way um, and so it really changed my sort of relationship with scale in my work and so it was very immediate. I remember um, the first few large paintings I made after that were just joyful and a, a breeze in comparison to the ones before that um, and it was it was really quite um, a magic transformation for me. I just It's hard to explain. It was so clear and that has sort of stuck with me to this day so that you know it really changed my relationship to scale very dramatically i think that's a really good place to finish this conversation it's been so um great to be able to talk with you about this gem before we do wrap i want to um i want to run three questions by you and just give me your just give me straight off the top of your head this is not um you know this is not something that you need to delve into too deeply but what i want to start with is what's keeping you up at the moment well it's kind of that question of um creativity for children i have to say i know we've talked about it already um but i i really would like to somehow see um yeah i think about how we can bring more or less prescriptive um, activities to children or how we can work to make sure they're having a good dose of creativity in schools Um, yeah i love that where so either on the one hand devices or pack, packing them off to do activity after activity 
there's not that same sort of open-ended mm. exploration and adventure and yeah what about who I should speak to next I, I was just on residency down at Bundanon which is was gorgeous and such a lovely place to um, spend some time and spend some focus um, on my practice and there was a few other artists down there and, and a writer um, Rebecca Giggs and we had some really interesting conversations and she writes uh, about ecology and human interaction with nature and um, I, I would really like to hear more from her. I love that idea. That sounds perfect. Now, last question. What gives you hope? Well, we have a new government, <laughs> um, which is hopeful. Where's the best place that people can find your work? Um, well, I'm represented by Sarah Cotia Gallery in Sydney and Milani Gallery in Brisbane. Um, I have a website, gemma-smith.com. That's the best place. All right, go there, check out the work. You can see all the things that we've been talking about today and uh, and and for, and just actually see, you know, you've been using your imagination to, um, to see it, um, actually see how that tracks with the reality of it. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous interviews, on this podcast i really highly recommend you go back and dig into them Uh, nick robinson kayleen milner cam webb lee tran lamb lynn dang all have incredible stories and i really highly recommend digging back i I just love talking to them if you are interested if you're loving the podcast please make sure you subscribe let me know what you think i'm on all the social channels twitter instagram linkedin um at matt underscore levinson And um, I look forward to sharing another story with you before too long. I might have a story for you.